there's a um, unreferenced uh, quote that says, wisdom is not wisdom when it's derived from books alone. Cancer is the coming next pandemic. Now, one can say that the actual next pandemic that is cancer is already here, present, and accounted for. When you look over the last three years, that has really accelerated this process, and I'll, I'll dive into why that is the case. This unknown quote, it, it really highlights the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge being just simply the accumulation of data, books. But we all recognize that knowledge does not equal wisdom, and by no means does wisdom come through just the simple accumulation of data. And again, when you look over the last three years, when you look over history, just simply taking data, knowledge, but not correctly applying it, there's no wisdom. And in fact, when you look at this process, it really comes down to the foundational and original principles and personal experiences in history that guide that data, that knowledge into the wisdom application of it. Because when there's solid foundation, you know, everybody says, we got to know where we're, we're coming from to where we're going. When there's solid history, foundation, then there's direction about where you're going. But yet when that foundation or, or when those original principles are being, say, you know, rewritten, destroyed, then what happens is there's no context for that data to be interpreted through. And thus moving forward, there's really no wisdom. There can be a remolding. There can be a remaking. And that's what we're really seeing uh, in a lot today. And I want to really focus on that as it relates to data. Again, not, and it's the application of the data through wisdom. And it's not simply just bias. It's what does the evidence really show us? And so I want you to open your mind and let's talk about the data as it relates to SARS-CoV-2, the COVID virus, spike proteins, and cancer. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm the creative director of this alliance. And tonight we have a serious topic. We are going to be discussing data as it relates to SARS-CoV-2, the spike protein, and cancer. Is there a relationship, you ask, and we ask? What are doctors like Nathan Goodyear, who've been treating cancer patients for years and years, observing in patients that's different in relation to this new virus? And the spike protein that's injected into your body with the Pfizer and Moderna uh, emergency use COVID vaccines. What is it that the spike protein is doing that's having an unusual effect on cancer patients? And if so, what can doctors, what can we do about it? Well, welcome, as I said, to this serious topic. I'm going to be asking questions, but we've got medical experts here to answer them, to try to make sense of all of this. And always, as always, we have a team of top nurses in the background already taking your questions that you put into Q&A, and you'll meet them later in the program. But we're going to bring on our doctors to have a conversation and to explain this 
relationship between COVID and the spike protein and cancer, they will have a conversation, explain as much as they're seeing. And I will come back with the questions that you give us, and we will continue and see what we can learn. This is serious business. We have, of course, our our expert critical care doctor and head of our alliance, Dr. Paul Merrick. And we have tonight Dr. Nathan Goodyear, who has been treating cancer patients for years and years and years. And he can explain more about Welcome. Welcome, Nathan. Welcome to the FLCCC Alliance here and to the program. And tell us exactly a little bit about just what your background is and then what you're seeing, because we're eager to hear. Thank you, Betsy. Well, um, I've been medical director at an integrative cancer clinic here in Arizona, so the Valley of the Sun. Uh, And I've been doing this for five years uh, down here. And what I've noticed, Betsy, is that when you look at dates, we divide dates by B.C. and A.D., right? There's a defining point. And I think history, we're going to look back on this last three years and say there was cancer pre-COVID and there was cancer post-COVID. Now, cancer is always a beast, but I've, what we're starting to see in the evidence is that it's changing. And that's what I think is generating a lot of conversations, a lot of thought, and a lot of just confusion, because what people are seeing happen, people with cancer, people with loved ones with cancer, and then what they're told is happening are two different things. George Orwell said, reject what you see and what you hear. But yet those are what guide us, our senses, our ability to listen, to see, to hear. And when we're asked to reject those, when we see those, we're asking, we're asking to be re- to reject really reality in many ways, when reality's staring us right in the face. Well, you had a you had a soundbite where you had given a talk earlier where you talked about data. And we live in a world now that is everything is data. Show me the data, show me the data. But you made a wonderful point in that to say. Don't forget the experience. Don't forget it's more than just data. Remember that there's a Dr. Paul Merrick there who has been in the ICU for years and has taught, and he's been a professor of medicine as well, who knows how the body works and knows uh, what you learn from treating patients. And you can't negate that. And I just thought that was a powerful statement. So that plays into what you're talking about when you see the data coming in from all of these people in their labs making vaccines or whatever they call it, the gene therapies. And now we have new disease or whatever it is. And, and when you maybe, maybe you can tell us since you in the trenches, how things have changed before COVID and now with COVID, yeah. what are the things you're seeing that you didn't see before? Well, you know, I think, let me see, I'm gonna go ahead and share my um, presentation here. So I think this word right here, Paul, really sums up what am I seeing? Now, I'm not the first one to mention this phrase, turbo cancer. And I, you know, we were talking beforehand and you mentioned that phrase and honestly, I had never heard it. And, but what I see 
basically fits in that phrase very well. It's cancer, but it's a very different form of cancer. The actual, the first physician that mentioned this was a, was a Canadian physician. And what he was simply doing is he was blending that art and science of medicine. You know, I can remember the first time I, I, I actually read your article about vitamin C and sepsis, but then when I watched the video of how you described how you decided to use that, it was a perfect blend of the art and the science of medicine. And what this doctor was doing when he described turbo cancer, of course, he was just literally destroyed by mainstream media by doing this, is he was just simply saying, what I see is cancer, but what I see is very different. He was just simply describing what he was seeing. So basically, because of that, now this has been a phrase that's been much maligned, but it's one that everybody's going to understand. So what am I seeing, Paul? I'm seeing a cancer that's behaving very differently. It's very aggressive. It's resistant to treatment. It spreads very, very rapidly. And all of this can be pointed back to, in many ways, spike proteins and what they're doing in the acute phase, whether that be injection or infection, but also with the coming long COVID crisis that we're seeing, that's going to basically tie in this as well, but more of a, a much longer game. So, you know, yeah. So, you know, when we look at the data, because Betsy, what you were talking about is what's the data show? Well, unfortunately, what happens in a lot of ways is things that get portrayed as data is not really data. And so here was a, this was an article actually published probably just four weeks ago over in the Daily Mail. And what they were showing or what they were trying to show was they said that, look, we're winning this war on cancer. And so what they said is that from the years 1919, 19, uh, excuse me, 2019 to 2020, that the, so the first year of the COVID pandemic, 1.5, there was a decline of 1.5% of cancer deaths. Now, that was really hard to take from this article because there's typos all through this article. There's improper grammar throughout all this article. But you had to take that for what it's worth because they were quoting the American Cancer Society in those numbers. But then when you actually look at CDC data from 2022, what they actually found was quite something different. They actually found that from the years 2018 to 2021, the number of cancer deaths as a whole increased by 4.7%. But when you just look at the number of deaths related to cancer as the primary underlying cause, it actually increased by 1%. So data versus just publication. And what we want to do in science is follow the data, Betsy. You referenced that video that was unfortunately not able to pay, play, but we want the data to lead, lead the way and guide us in the art of the medicine as we deliver the science. So, you know, what I what I like to tell our patients and what I talk about in my podcast and other areas is my concern is that cancer is the coming next pandemic that that is right in front of our eyes that we just can't see. And so when we look at, you know, spike proteins, so when you look at what we're dealing with today, in many ways, it's it's really just a disease of spike proteins. And what I've got here is actually an article uh, published in uh, 2020, the journal Molecular Cell Biology, but what they were describing here is a condition called metabolic endotoxemia. And this is inflammation that originates from the gut, but it spreads systemically 
and it actually contributes significantly to obesity, insulin resistance, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and many of these chronic diseases of aging we so well know. But this inflammation is driven by a lipopolysaccharide toxin from a gram-negative bacteria. What this article looked at is the combined uh, stimulation of the spike protein from the SARS-CoV-2 virus, along with the lipopolysaccharide from metabolic endotoxemia, and it exponentiated the systemic inflammation. So when we look at this list of obesity, insulin resistance, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, those are the same list of comorbidities that are considered high risk for COVID. Yet we know this systemic inflammation originating from the gut actually also contributes to these symptoms. Then you add spike proteins to that, whether that be injection or infection, it's going to exponentiate the systemic inflammatory signaling that we see in these patients. And that in turn is going to increase the comorbidity associated with these patients. And the one I left off here was cancer. So clearly what we're seeing is a furthering of the systemic inflammation that is driving these chronic diseases of aging. And this spike protein, whether from injection or infection, is really just exponentiating that process. That's frightening. That's absolutely frightening. Well, thank you for the good inroad because we don't want to focus on fear, right? So Nathan, are there any particular cancers that stand out in particular? Um, are you seeing unusual cancers or is it the usual common breast, lung, colon cancer? Are you seeing you know, unusual cancers or cancers in young people or something different? Uh, all the above, Paul. I mean, it's we we just had a new patient come to us. Um, she's 26 years old. She was diagnosed when she was 24 with stage four breast cancer. Oh my gosh. Okay. I've seen, you know, the you know, breast cancer in men, very rare. In five years, just here in the valley, I've seen four, four patients. In the last six months, I've seen two patients with prime two primaries pancreatic cancer and breast cancer. So we're seeing very early advanced disease. We are seeing very, for lack of a better term, just really funky disease. It's not responding to treatment, especially with cancer that comes in that is virgin. It's not been exposed to treatment. Usually that's the best treatment opportunity in these patients. Uh, and we're just, so we're just seeing, take your pick. You know, the, the blood clots that we see, every one of our patients, I'd say probably 30 to 40% of our patients are dealing with some form of blood clotting, whether that be pulmonary embolus, DVTs, uh, over 50% of our patients are on blood thinners of some type. But that spike protein also dives into that as well because of what it's doing with the receptors and how it's interacting with the vascular endothelium. But it all ties to the cancer, the blood clots, it, it all ties together. So what about people in remission? Uh, there's this idea that people in remission who are being vaccinated, now um, the cancers are out of control. Yeah. So, you know, what we want to do is focus on hope. So I think always telling stories helps patients to recognize the hope. So this is actually a case study here, Paul, that this was a patient that was in all sense and terms in remission. 
when she first came to me, she was actually diagnosed with stage four breast cancer back in 2010. And she came with a, a, a eight to 10, excuse me, 8.8 8. 8 centimeter left um, upper outer quadrant left breast mass. And she had the worst case of lymphedema you've ever seen in her left arm. She could not move her arm. She was on morphine. She was on Percocet uh, because of the pain. She was actually able through treatment integratively to see complete eradication of that tumor. And she was unable to move her arm initially, but then she was able to lift up her arm. And I, I would always see her and say, Katie, she raised her arm because she was just so happy to be able to do that. Her tumor markers actually reached normal. But then in uh, 2021, on a December trip, her and her husband both contracted COVID. Hit her pretty hard, actually hit her husband worse. But after that standpoint, her tumor markers within three to four weeks actually started to rise again and started to rise very quickly. And so we initiated treatment, but treatment didn't work, whereas it worked before. So either so this can was- I, can, I, yeah. can I ask you, how sick was she with COVID? Oh, she was sick for about four weeks. So she was pretty sick. Yeah, she was very sick. Yeah, so I think you make, sorry me interrupting, but I think no, you make no, a really no. important point. So, you know, it's spike protein, whether from the jab or from the infection that can precipitate this. And if it's from infection, and I think you always want to treat early, but specifically, I mean, if you, if you have an underlying malignancy, you really want to be treated really early. In fact, you should have a what if kit at home because it's really the cumulative load of spike. So, I mean, it's not surprising. I mean, if this woman was sick for a while, I mean, she had a high spike load and we know that the spike is gonna, you know, um, make the tumor uncontrolled. So, you know, I think the message is, is you know, we always wanna treat early, but particularly if you, if you have a malignancy, you, you should be prepared. And, you know, when you look at viruses, there are currently eight recognized oncoviruses, which are viruses that have been shown to actually cause cancer. And so when you look at how this virus behaves, it is hard to call it anything but an oncovirus because it does it. And at the very end, I have a slide where I actually present a defined representation from conventional literature on what an oncovirus is. And it checks every box. It checks every box. So in this patient already with this extensive history of disease, you know, she has a compromised immune system. Of course, we were doing everything to help her immune system. But this infection, this additional spike load, not an injection, but from an infection was enough to really um, spur on a very, very rapid growth and unfortunately, a rapid decline from for her. Um, but this next patient is one that more recently, she was diagnosed in 2020 with stage four ER um, estrogen progesterone uh, positive HER2 negative breast cancer. And when she initially presented with lung, liver, and bone meds, essentially this had all, she, she had one spot in the lung that was remaining. And so she was at home doing treatment to just continue the process. November of 2022, she too got another big infection, really knocked her down 
She told me four, uh, four weeks when she was here recently. And what happened then is I learned from that un unfortunate past experience with Katie. I quickly set up a PET CT, quickly got labs, jumped in, and sure enough, what we see, and you can actually see this on the imaging, if, if you can see my uh, um, pointer there, all of these areas in this right, in this lung is new lymph nodes and new lung metastasis. And so basically that was four weeks through the month of November into the first part of December. Then we repeated this in January. And now what we have is a disease that is very active. It's very in blossom and we're gonna get treatment going exponentially very quickly. So neither one of these were neither one of these patients received injection spike proteins. They were both naive in that arena, but what they both got were infections and very strong infections, and both of them turned the tide very abruptly. Would people like this benefit? People have who've had cancer would they benefit from the FLCCC prevention protocol? with using ivermectin and the vitamins that, that Dr. Merrick and others have put together, which don't involve injecting you with a spike protein. Definitively. Not any yes, questions. Uh, Betsy, that's a really good question, Betsy. How did you hey. come up with such a good question? So obviously, I think. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. So I think if you're a vulnerable person, you know, you, 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 you've had a cancer, you're in remission, you would be what we would call high risk. And you may be the patient who should be on prophylaxis because, you know, I think Dr. Goodyear has shown you what the virus does and what the spike does. So, you know, you don't want to take a chance. And we know that prophylaxis does work, although they don't want to believe it. You know, prophylaxis does work. So I think it's very good point there, Betsy, that so if you are a patient with cancer in remission, I think you really have to consider strongly to be on a prophylactic regimen. Would you agree, Nathan? Oh, I would say more than that. Um, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I would say if you're high risk, you may not have been diagnosed with cancer. If you're high risk, obese, insulin resistant, diabetic, immunocompromised, autoimmune disease, I think all of those patients from a cancer perspective need to be on some preventative strategy. It's really interesting. In the height of the pandemic from 2019 uh, to 2021, early 2021, where we were in our clinic at that time, we actually were doing a lot of things, ivermectin, vitamin C, curcumin, quercetin, all of these, thing, these things are part of the preventative and ongoing treatment strategy. All that time, we had one case of COVID, one. And this was a patient that took a vacation that got it when she was gone on vacation. But while they were in house, none. And I, I'm convinced, don't have the data to prove cause and effect, but clearly why everybody else was dealing with COVID, we had zero in the clinic. So that, that's what's amazing. And we actually had a couple of um, nurses and myself actually get COVID. So despite that, these patients were able to avoid it. So, and in those patients really, really, I think provide some protection. So when you look at acute 
spike protein exposure, whether that be injection or infection, it's really, you know, it's it's affecting in several areas. And again, the evidence is all there. There won't be a double-blinded randomized placebo-controlled trial, Paul, but the evidence is there is what it's going to do. I mean, and I think it's important to remember that the spike protein is a toxin. It's what it is. And I think it, it gets missed on most. And when you look at the Latin word toxin, that means poison. And so when we recognize what that does or what that is and how that can trigger this process, I think the, the spike protein as a toxin really opens, I think, the awareness of the potential impact. You know, I, I just want to jump in here with this one question because it follows up with what you're saying from Lucia or Lucia, who says, could therefore taking long-term ivermectin reduce the risk of cancer after a spike protein exposure of any kind, injection, what have you? My experience yes. is yes. Yeah, we'll come to that. So okay. bef before we do, maybe Nathan, he, he's something called an integrative oncologist. So um, maybe you can tell us what you do and how you treat patients. Um, because I think that's important for folks to recognize. Um, yeah. And that I think, you know, Nathan's an important breed of physician because I think he offers the best of both worlds. Yeah. So. Um, I am a medical doctor. I'm also an MD homeopath here in Arizona. So that's a unique combination. I, I was, I came out of the conventional world. I recognize the benefit of that. I, I jokingly tell patients, if you break a hip, vitamin D is not going to help repair that hip. You need to surgically repair it. Um, so, but what I do in, in, in basically walking that um, fence is I help to bring together natural, holistic, and an integrative strategy to the treatment of cancer. So here where I am as medical director, we actually have four doctors. We have two MDs, of which I'm one, and two naturopaths. And what we do is we bring together a very evidence-based natural approach, a very evidence-based holistic approach, and a very evidence-based integrative cancer approach. So let's take, for example, uh, the immune system, COVID-2, and uh, cancer treatment chemotherapy. If, if we come in with full-dose chemotherapy, the literature is very clear it's going to suppress the T lymphocytes. It's going to create systemic uh, immune suppression, particularly within the tumor microenvironment. And in this situation where there may be coexisting um, COVID or boosters, we're going to have a exponentiating immune suppression in the tumor microenvironment, and that is going to in turn allow the cancer to very quickly spread and metastasize, which is what we see in these patients. It's a very aggressive, very early metastatic process versus you take a, instead of full dose chemo, you come in with the lower dose chemo and you target that based on genomics, epigenomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, metabolomics. So that precision-based care that is the future of medicine that's really available today, we're able to bring that to the front, not suppress the immune system, hit the cancer, broaden the anti-cancer effects, and really preserve and protect the immune system. So you can at the same time go after the cancer, but not really propagate the long-term impact of that spike protein or COVID virus. So Nathan, you actually do give regular chemotherapy as well. Yeah, Paul, but we use low dose. Yes. We use so low I dose. think that's really an important distinction. It's really important because I think that it's not one or either. It's the best of both because I think 
You know, you understand cancer, You and I agree, if you're going to use chemo, use it in a lower dose that doesn't kill the patient while you're using other modalities to support the immune system, to support them metabolically. But I think there's some, unfortunately, many patients take one or other route. They go to conventional, you know, uh, oncologists who will just blast them with chemo until they kill them, or they go to purely naturopathic doctors who don't use chemo. And I think what you do is what I think is you use the best of both worlds. Is that Doesn't that make sense? Oh, yeah. We just had the patient here of stage four prostate cancer. He's been battling it for years. Uh, all His bone mats are gone. Okay. And oncology is going to tell you that once you have bone mats, there's nothing you can do. And so I'm sitting here, he's across my desk and he's like, what did it? Was it this? Was it that? Was it this? Was it that? And I looked at him and his name is Edward. And I said, yes, it's all of it. And because cancer doesn't, you know, it goes back to this magic bullet theory, this kind of one strike causes it all. But we have to recognize that the complexity of what cancer is and how it becomes can't be handled through one thing. But one thing like a spike protein can definitely exacerbate it, can definitely light a fuse to make it take off again. So we have to recognize that 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 basically 30,000 foot perspective and then 30 foot perspective. So basically it's multimodality therapy. It's very much like what we do for COVID. We don't have much one magic bullet. We have a whole bunch of therapies that work together to achieve the end point. And I think it's really important because, you know, I, as I said, I think the extremes on both ends and what you do is it makes so much sense is you combine the best of both worlds. You give chemo, but you don't kill them with the chemo. And then you give all the other supportive therapy because obviously you've got to support the immune system because the immune system is important to get rid of cancer. You've got to treat them metabolically. You I mean, it just makes so much sense. And I think that's the take-home message here for our audience is that you need an integrative oncologist or if you have an oncologist who who has blinders and can't see, then I think you also need an integrative physician who can work alongside the uh, traditional oncologist. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, the best, the best strategy, Paul, would be a team working together for the patient. After yes. all, the patient is our focus. You know, we are here to give patients hope, to heal them. I often tell our patients the word physician in Hebrew actually means healer. You know, I, I don't know too many meetings where docs would be asked if they're healers, if they would raise their hands, but at what the meaning of the word is, that's what we are. We're healers. Yeah, I, think, yeah, I agree with you. I think the problem is many traditional or conventional oncologists would consider what much of what you do hocus pocus. Which, which is a problem. And so they may, you know, obviously what you're doing makes a difference. I know it, you know it, we all know it, but I think many traditional oncologists who are just, because obviously there's a lot profit motive. They just want to give chemo. And so they may not be open to this team effort. And that's why I think it's so important for the audience to recognize that you need a team approach and if you're going to get chemo, you really want to get someone also who does, you know, more complementary medicine, um, looking at your immunity, looking at your nutrition, looking at other aspects. 
um, which is so important. You know, you 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 know this very well, and I'm sure you've talked about it. You know, I can remember early on in the pandemic where all they were talking about was, you know, the cytokine storm, the cytokine burst, that just that inflammatory response that just took over from the initial infection and just laid waste to the pulmonary uh, system. Well, that that had already been described in the scientific literature as it relates to full dose chemo and mechanisms of how that can actually contribute to a cytokine storm that then spreads the cancer. So in breast cancer, they are actually able to show that full dose chemo will come in there and shrink a primary tumor, but it will actually elicit a cytokine storm and cause it to spread. And so it's like, well, it's like, well, then the question is, if our job is to heal the whole of the patient, it's not to just look at a tumor or look at a spike protein and try to isolate it. It's to recognize the whole of the patient needs to be well healed. And if we're shrinking a tumor yet spreading it, what in the world have we done? And so that, that's where I think an integrative approach allows us to bring that to bear. And what I tell people is, because they often ask, well, well why, why does my doctor not know this? Well, I quit asking that question a long time ago because yeah, I don't yeah. have time to waste thinking about why they don't. Um, and so what I can do is say, here's the evidence, put it out there, use it for the treatment of my patients, empower patients, empower doctors to take a true evidence-based approach to integrative cancer treatment. But when things like this, like spike proteins and SARS-CoV-2 come in, they, they clearly throw monkey wrenches into this process. But we have to recognize the science to be able to attack it, not react, but be proactive in that process. So folks may be interested to know, because we, we have a common interest in vitamin C. And I presume when you give chemotherapy, you give vitamin C at the same time. Actually, I don't give it at the same time. We do give it, you know, while they're getting treatment. Yeah. But there are other therapies that we will do with that. Yeah, so I mean, what people may not realize is high-dose vitamin C actually kills cancer cells. I mean, there's really good data. And so there is the synergy between chemotherapy and vitamin C in killing cancer. Radiation and vitamin C, Paul. I mean, yes. it used to be that they would say, well, don't give radiation. Don't give vitamin C when you're getting radiation. Well, we now know with the pro-oxidative vitamin C dosing IV, it is pro-oxidative. And so there's actually studies showing the combinatory effect of that. Yeah. So you need less radiation to get the same effect when you get vitamin C. And it protects the healthy cells at the same time. Yeah. Are there any other off-label drugs that you use? You know, because there seem to be a lot, lot of drugs that people don't want to talk about, but seem to have a role in, in cancer. You know, it's really interesting when you look a lot of the at a lot of the off-label drugs that we will use or repurpose meds, um, a lot of them are antiparasitics. And really? when, oh. yeah, yeah. When, when you look, and this could be from a conventional repurpose medication or it could be from a natural perspective. So ivermectin is one that we were using long before COVID came in. Hydroxychloroquine was one we were using long before COVID came in. And uh, then there's a, a, a natural called sweet wormwood from which 
it comes artesanate, which is the gold standard treatment for malaria across the world and, and labeled so by the World Health Organization. You can get that in you know, oral artemisinin form or artemisia. So when you look at the characteristics of a parasite, of a virus, of cancer, there is a lot of similarities. And is, so, is mabendazole not also a very good anti-cancer agent? Yeah, mabendazole is great. Become a little bit more difficult to come by, but mabendazole is fantastic. Doxycycline, azithromycin, both of these are antibiotics that have been used in um, you know treatment of SARS-CoV-2. They are both effective. Yeah, so I think you know, Sarah, this opens a really interesting can of worms because you're not just using you know most patients who get go to an oncologist will get chemo and radiation. But here you have a whole bunch of tools in your toolbox that synergize with that and are, or, I mean, they repurpose drugs that are safe, effective, and, and can help the patient. So, you know, it's the same story again, the war on repurposed drugs. Oh, yeah. And, and these are drugs that you know this. They've been around for decades. And so the safety profile is just enormous. I mean, ivermectin, I don't think it hurt a flea. Um, yet it was proposed as being some, you know, incredibly dangerous drug. And I've had no issues with it in anybody. Same, pretty much the same with hydroxychloroquine. You know, so it, it's, that's, that's why, you know, I, I mentioned that George Orwell quote, because in the beginning of the pandemic, we were asked to ignore our eyes and ignore what we knew. And it's like, no, we can't do that. We need to be in the evidence and we need to push it out there and speak out. So one, one more question, then I will follow up on. So do you have any dietary advice that you generally give your patients? Because there seems to be some evidence about using a keto diet to you know, prevent hyperglycemia. Do you, yeah. do you advocate that? Well, we what we do is we custom diets for each person. There's particular... Um, again, going back to that one-size-fits-all approach, everybody wants the one diet to treat cancer, right? The one diet to lose weight. And that would be nice. It would make everybody's lives easy. But when you look at the ketogenic diet, you know, it's a high-fat diet or it's a high-protein diet. The point is it's a low-carb diet. But you can have high-protein, high-fat, but each one of those, though they may be a ketogenic diet, are different, and not all cancers can be aided in the treatment by a ketogenic diet, but there are a few that definitely can. So, for example, glioblastoma, brain tumors, can absolutely be aided through the treatment of a high-fat ketogenic diet, four to one fats to carb. But also, it's a, um, a, a pancreatic cancer, which is where it's very helpful where a high fat diet is very helpful in a ketogenic diet. But then when you look at breast cancer, the literature is not as clear there. So if, if you have to say, well, I'm gonna hold your arm behind your back, what one dietary you know, recommendation would you advise? And I'd say, well, make it an organic plant-based diet, whole plant food, you know, cut out the sugars, cut out the processed food, quit drinking all the sugar and just eat real food. And I think that's a good place to start. And for most people, learning to eat healthy, it's, it's like learning a new language. And so helping them to learn this, this language, but not just learn it, but how to live it, that takes time. So jumping from a typical kind of Western American diet and then say, we're going to jump right into a, you know, a vegan diet, 
most people are not going to be able to sustain that or be successful in that. And we want to equip patients to be successful. So I have a question that I'm sure everyone wants to ask you. So the question is, I've been vaccinated and maybe I've been boosted and maybe I've been triple boosted. And so I don't want to get cancer. <laughs> is there any way, any any intervention that people can do? I mean, because it's very difficult to predict. I don't think we have any way of predicting who, who will or who won't get cancer. So do you have a good answer to that or are we still looking? Well, I, I think one place to start, there's several ways to answer that question, Paul. One place to start is to look at the high-risk profile, so those comorbidities. So if, if you're overweight, if you're a diabetic, if you're insulin resistant, if you have cardiovascular disease, all of those are comorbidities for SARS-CoV-2, but also for cancer in many ways. So I think you look at those and you say, let's implement a strategy to also help you live healthy. You know, eliminate the metabolic syndrome, lose the weight, build muscle, live a healthy lifestyle, cut out the stress. But then you can also add in, you know, the therapies that we all want to turn to, you know, the oral supplements, like making sure your vitamin D is not just adequate, but therapeutic. And I think it's very important to understand as you talk about vitamin D and inflammation, when there is inflammation, it is like a wall of water that's keeping that salmon from from swimming upstream. So if there's a lot of inflammation in a patient, whether that be with cancer, whether that be with cardiovascular disease or SARS-CoV-2, it is going to keep that vitamin D lower and it's going to make it much harder to get that vitamin D level up. So you have to push that much harder. So just simply saying, take 5,000 units of vitamin D or 10,000, that may not be enough for those patients. For many of our cancer patients, whether they've been vaccinated or not, interestingly enough, I'm seeing more than or not, but the people that are boosted, that's where we see the, the really crazy disease process. We're having to give these people 30 to 50,000 IUs a day and sometimes injections throughout the week just to get their levels above 60 because there's such pushback. So quercetin, curcumin, ivermectin, all of these great interventional therapies can be used, I believe, also in a proactive preventative strategy, but it has to be combined with, you know, that systemic inflammation process that really sets the stage for these comorbidities that allow cancer and other diseases to just take off. I've got to get some questions in here. Yeah, because I was going to say, Betsy, I'm sure we have a lot of questions. Oh, me too. And, you know, you mentioned um, glioblastoma. So I just want to get this one in first. William Barnes said, there is a girl who's 15 years old vaccinated. She developed glioblastoma. She was operated on and had chemotherapy. The doctors have run out of options. Is there anything that could possibly help her? One of the things I've learned, Betsy, over doing this for a while is there's always hope. It's not my job to tell people <laughs> what their body can't do, okay? People with stage four cancer, they know what they're facing. Telling them that, you know, you're not going to make it doesn't help them. So I've seen patients that have told they can't heal do. Now, I've seen patients that are in bad, bad shape don't heal, okay? So it's to give hope, but to give real hope. Is there hope for her? Absolutely. Are there therapies that need to be um, added in and be very intensive? You bet. 
Um, so vitamin C readily crosses the blood-brain barrier. Okay, Boswellia, very helpful in reducing the, the brain edema. So, you know, photodynamic therapy, all of these very, very, very important strategies, just a few, curcumin would be very helpful here. Very important strategies to, to help here, but there's hope. It just has to be approached aggressively, integratively, very close follow-up, very intensive therapy with follow-up. So basically, I would say that this patient needs to see an integrative oncologist like yeah. tomorrow because like, you, that, that's the bottom line. As Nathan said, there, there's you can never say there's no hope. There are lots of, you know, repurposed drugs that you can try. And what do you have to lose? And you give a patient hope and that's what they need. Um, you know, I discovered as simple as the diabetic medication metformin has, has any cancer effects. Um, it's insane. I mean, it actually, when you actually look at the biochemical mechanisms of what metformin does in cancer, I mean, it, it even has, you know, cancer, anti-cancer stem cell activity. But one thing I want to focus on, Paul, real quick, if we could, a little diversion, because what a lot of people don't recognize when they think about cancer, they're thinking about it growing. My primary concern is about it spreading the metastatic effect. And one of the mechanisms by what by which the spike protein, whether injection or infection is doing, is it's it's interacting with the platelets and it's hyperactivating the platelets and the agglutination of the platelets. And of course we see that in the blood clots, but here when there are circulating tumor cells that are released from these primary tumors, what happens is the hyperactivated platelets actually surround the cancer cell in what's called a, a platelet cancer cell aggregate. And this actually buffers the cancer cells as it circulates systemically. And it, it keeps the immune system away and it protects it against the sheer forces. So in essence, this spike protein is setting up the strategy in which cancer can actually spread and survive. But then we also know that spike proteins damage endothelium. So what is a platelet going to do? A platelet's going to find damaged endothelium and say, I need to sit here and clot. Well, if it happens to be a platelet that's surrounding a cancer cell, that's a great process for extravasation, which is that cancer cell to then migrate through that endothelium into a new organ site. So this is from the spike protein. This is in the literature. On this uh, issue of spreading, uh, one of our questions, uh, LAM says, um, Dr. Goodyear, are you seeing turbo cancers occurring in some organs more than others? What about demographic differences like gender or age bracket? Yeah, great. That's a great question. Yes, I'm seeing it definitely more in the solid tumors, but I have to include some of the lymphomas in that. Um, we see a lot of very aggressive pancreatic cancers a lot. Breast cancer as well. Now that could be a selection bias. So that could be, uh, you know, just we see more women with breast cancer. But I can tell you, we over the last year have seen many, many pancreatic cancer patients uh, with very aggressive disease process in that. So um, yes, women, lost a friend women more than men, women more than men. And you know, what's interesting about that, when you look at some of these receptors that we look at, ACE2 receptors, um, and there's other receptors, toll-like 4 receptors, uh, the integrins. But here, these ACE2 receptors are expressed a little bit more in women uh, than men, so in, in many of these cancer types. So with that, 
again, you don't have to see a double-blinded randomized placebo-controlled trial. You can actually see the evidence there of every, it's like a five, five billion piece puzzle. You're getting enough pieces together. You can see the picture. You just don't have every piece in place. This question from Wes Angelazzi wants to know, how can we self-monitor for cancerous growths? Is there a certain blood work that needs to be done? And at what intervals? He says, I had a mild COVID infection and I'm concerned now. Yeah. So that's with all of our, our patients, when they leave, I, I counsel them on just even if you have mild symptoms, let us know because what we're going to immediately do is do some testing. And if it's time for imaging, we may even move that up to reassess that process. But you know, very quickly, you can look at systemic inflammatory markers. Uh, you can look at you know very easily what's called high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, SED rate, though it's not as good as the um, C-reactive protein. Also, interestingly enough, what I've noticed is when you follow vitamin C levels, plasma vitamin C levels and plasma vitamin A levels, is that when there's an infection, those levels plummet. And seeing a vitamin, seeing a vitamin C, vitamin D, or vitamin A level plummet, and yet you see a rise in systemic inflammation, and this patient has a history of cancer, is in remission, or is in active treatment, that is a patient I'm a I'm gonna be very aggressive in that treatment strategy because that is exactly the bed in which cancer is going to lie. That study that I showed that, sh that looked at spike proteins plus the lipopolysaccharide for metabolic endotoxemia, they were increasing the activation of what's called nuclear factor kappa B, which is a systemic inflammatory marker. It's a genetic, it's a transcription factor, and it promotes inflammation. They were able to so show that the combination of those two together was exponentiating the level of systemic inflammation. So if we see evidence of systemic inflammation, if we see drops or declines in anti-inflammatories, that often could be the first sign of needing to act. So I have all of my patients monitored very closely after they discharge. Unfortunately, what happens when patients are in remission, there's not a lot of follow-up uh, really across the board in cancer treatment. So basically, you know, what I would say is, you know, if you're a patient in remission, you know, obviously you need to follow up closely. But if you've just had a mild infection with COVID, you know, I think the, the, the statistics are in your favor that what the best thing is a healthy lifestyle. You know, I think the best, you know, we don't know, you know, we the, the, the inventors of the vaccine did not give us an antidote. They didn't invent an antidote. So I think the best protection is a healthy lifestyle. So if you, you know, if you're obese and you, um, uh, you, you know, diabetes, hypertension, I think it's, it's, it's a healthy lifestyle that's really important. You want to lose weight. You want to, so insulin resistance and insulin is an enormous driver of malignancy. And we know that insulin activates is one of the causes of, 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 cancer cells going out of control because it's, it's a growth stimulant. So insulin resistance is a really bad thing. So it's a matter of healthy lifestyle, you know, which we spoke about, you know, good diet, um, intermittent fasting or time-based fasting, getting some sunshine, getting some, you know, 
ultra-infrared uh, light, getting vitamin D. I think, you know, just healthy lifestyle choices is probably your best way of limiting cancer, if irrespective of whether you had COVID or not, uh, okay. irrespective. Here's a good question. Since you mentioned the healthy lifestyle and taking uh, certain supplements that are good, but Kathleen Strand wants to know which, if any, of the supplements on the protocols should our COVID protocols should be avoided for those with cancer, perhaps NAC or methylene blue? Very good question. Very insightful. Um, so what I would say is methylene blue, it should not be avoided. And I use that in all my cancer patients. It's a, a great mitochondrial stimulant, um, really helps them uh, get energy. It's great. We we use it both oral and IV. It's fantastic. We couple it with photodynamic therapy, just a very effective therapy. N-acetylcysteine, NAC. This is where I would say, yes, you absolutely need to avoid this. When you look at cancer, you know, everybody, if they go to an integrative cancer clinic, Betsy or Paul, a lot of times they'll get vitamin C and they'll get glutathione. And what I tell patients is, the vitamin C, absolutely. The evidence on vitamin C in the treatment of cancer is overwhelming. It's so overwhelming, you just have to consider those that aren't doing it just don't want to do it and don't want to know. But when you look at glutathione, this may tie into why a lot of conventional docs will go, hey, there's no science to this, but they don't recognize their science to the other. The, metab excuse me, the metabolomic effect of vitamin C, meaning what high-dose pro-oxidative vitamin C is doing in cancer cells and not in healthy cells, a dualistic principle, the vitamin C is actually depleting the cancer cell of glutathione. So if we come in and give N-acetylcysteine, which is a precursor to glutathione, the speculation there is that it is going to support the cancer cell. The same thing applies to NAD. The same no, thing- I may just in interrupt that, Nathan, because what he says is absolutely true. It makes absolutely no sense to give vitamin C and glutathione. It's absurdity, and there are many practitioners who get both because the vitamin C, you're using it for its pro-oxidant effect to kill the cancer cell. The glutathione has antioxidant effect, so it minimizes the effect of vitamin C. So to give the two together, I'm sorry, is dumb. So <laughs> I'm sorry, it just is. So that's a good question. So if you're getting high-dose vitamin C, you want to avoid taking NAC or glutathione or any of those antioxidants because the whole idea of vitamin C is it's causing oxidant injury to the cell. And it just so happens that the cancer cells are more susceptible than normal cells. Is that not true, Nathan? That's absolutely correct. It couldn't be, well, couldn't be stated better. You know, you touch on a different issue. I, what I was saying is that, look, that, that NAC is going to actually support the cancer glutathione depletion of which we were just trying to do with the vitamin C. And what you're saying is if you give it right there together, the glutathione is just basically counteracting what the vitamin C is trying to do. So, um, yeah, it's, ab it's absolutely correct. And the, but the same thing applies to NAD, because one of the other things, for example, that vitamin C is doing is it depletes the cancer cell of NAD. And so it creates a detoxification crisis, it creates an energy crisis, but the depletion of the NAD, again, sets it up for self-destruction. And if we're giving NAD to these patients, that is uh, a no-no for our patients. But many of the others, vitamin D, curcumin, the repurposed, 
Um, it's, a, it's, it's a really good question. So I'd say most of the supplements and nutraceuticals are fine. You know, the curcumin, the resveratrol, um, the vitamin C, the vitamin D. I, I think Nathan's correct. One just needs to be careful using the um, antioxidants. Well, here, here's a question because we know there are some people who've had the lingering COVID. So Peter Aubin wants to know, says, is there an increased cancer risk for the unvaccinated who had moderate COVID-19, but had some lingering post-COVID problems, perhaps related to Epstein-Barr syndrome? You know, let me see if I can, can you still see my screen? Not at the moment. Okay. It must've got unshared. Um, there was a slide here me in the show. Here we go. So here we go. Long COVID, you know, and this is what, so this gets into that question because one of the things that, you, that uh, you know, some studies are pointing to in long COVID is, is this a chronic infection? Is it a persistent infection? Is it, you know, latent, slow growing, or, you know, just not growing at all? Or is this, is there something else involved here? Is it chronic inflammation? Is it reactivation of another virus? Here, he's referencing EBV. There was actually a study that looked at uh, patients with uh, long COVID or chronic COVID. Uh, they found that what they, what they saw is they found 67% of these patients had reactivation based on uh, serotyping uh, of the antibodies to the EBV. That's the uh, Epstein-Barr virus. Now, what's interesting about that virus is that is an oncovirus. That is a cancer-causing virus. So here, if we're talking about it as it relates to cancer, this is a patient that has, if a patient has cancer, then you get long COVID as a byproduct of a COVID infection, whether it be mild or severe, that could then actually reactivate a virus that in and of itself is oncogenic. And so in that setting, that could be almost like a, you know, a, just a system turning on itself. But what I've got listed here are other parameters, because I do think that reactivation is a component of, of this process. I think it's also the cumulative viral exposure that, that we deal with. Um, it's that what happens with cancer, uh, excuse me, what happens with uh, this virus and spike proteins is it co-ops cancer signaling pathways, whether that be hypoxia, modification of the immune system, even oncometabolic issues. It promotes systemic inflammation. I've touched on that already. It does so in a variety of ways. Uh, Toll-like four receptors are one I've not even addressed that really is a conserved uh, receptor system that allows our immune system to see enemies, foreign and domestic. And this system, this toll-like four receptors get upregulated in cancer cells. And so when there's infection or reactivation of infection, you'll actually get a stimulus to the cancer. It's going to suppress the immune system. It's going to um, lead to T cell exhaustion, natural killer cell exhaustion, a shift in what's called the TH2 balance. You're just going to get an absolute disruption of the immune system's ability to find cancer cells and destroy it. It even upregulates what's called uh, programmed death ligand one, which is a checkpoint. And, and so a lot of people take an Optivo or Keytruda. These are checkpoint inhibitors that allow the immune system to see cancer. This process really disrupts every aspect of how our defenses can work. And it allows something like long COVID, whether it be an infection, spike protein or inflammation to really blossom a big ongoing issue. 
We have, I'd like to get another question in here. We have hit the top of the hour, but we have a Dr. Marion Lauderoot has asked regarding turbo cancers. Immunosenescence induces and causes the progression of chronic diseases, including cancer. Unfortunately, this means that both COVID-19 long haul and spike protein vaccination induce a loss of immune surveillance at the level of the macrophage because it makes the macrophages dysfunctional and worse, blocks the trained innate immunity involving the potent HERV K102 protector system. Doesn't this adequately explain the turbo cancers? I hope I... I hope well, I said you know, that right. I'm not a doctor. Yeah. So I think what we're looking at there is a part of the process. I mean, you know, so she she's touching on how the the immune system's ability to you know basically survey the landscape and identify all enemies, foreign and domestic. Here, the spike protein, whether infection or injection, is a is a foreign, can become a domestic with incorporation to the genetic code. And then the cancer is more of a domestic enemy. What happens here is because of a lot of what happens with oncoviruses is you actually get genomic modification. You get epigenomic modification. So you can actually get immune modification so much so that the innate immunity as the doctor correctly presented, it will become suppressed and not be able to supervise and identify friend from foe. But also it will upregulate how cancer will evade the immune system. What's really interesting about cancer, Betsy, is that the cancer actually recruits the immune system to it in the tumor microenvironment. And then it turns around and turns the immune system on the immune system. So in many ways, it's kind of an autoimmune-esque type of situation. But what's happening in this process is the spike proteins actually induce that macrophage polarization there's, there's certain macrophages in the tumor microenvironment that can be protective against cancer, but also there are those that can be proactively stimulating to cancer. And the spike protein can actually trigger that move from the protective macrophages to the unprotective. So though that statement was correct, I think the process is much broader because it even includes metabolomics and many other parameters in the process of cancer. We have a question for Paul. Some of our viewers want to clarify the guidance around NAC and vitamin C in our protocols. Should they be taken together? Yeah, so I, yes, they can. So, so what, what Nathan is talking about is, is, is high dose vitamin C for the use of, for treatment of cancer. That's a completely different thing. So vitamin C is really interesting at a low dose, which we recommend is actually antioxidant. It's antioxidant. NAC is an antioxidant. So yes, it's perfectly fine to take NAC and vitamin C together in the vaccine injured or any of the other protocols. What we were really speaking about is patients who are getting high dose intravenous vitamin C, then you don't want to take NAC. Would you agree with that, Nathan? But otherwise, to take NAC and vitamin C together is perfectly fine. 
I would I, I agree completely. I would say for over 90% of people with COVID, um, they can take, you know, by mouth vitamin C, so oral vitamin C, dose it multiple times a day. They can combine NAC with that at that stage. I think it's if cancer is present or if that person is in remission, that's where somebody that has knowledge that needs to be involved. But when you're talking about cancer treatment, it's a just it's it has to be IV high dose prooxidative. In COVID, only if somebody is in the hospital is where I think IV vitamin C would be helpful for patients with COVID. Yeah, so we, the, the, it's very, we're talking about different doses. So the doses we recommend is like stress doses of vitamin C, which is really important for the immune system, for inflammation, for antioxidant. And the doses you need to treat cancer are exceedingly high. You cannot achieve those doses orally. And it has to be given intravenously. And so um, there are two different sides of the same coin, but, but it's a different situation. But a good question, Betsy. Well, that's as much as we have time for, but I know we have a lot of questions. And Nathan, you're going to be flooded with questions. I trust that we're giving some of your information out for your, your practice out in Arizona so that people can contact you. Uh, but honestly, there have how many integrative oncologists are there? How many are out there that people can go to? Um, or is everybody in the system these days and plugging you through of all, you know, the usual stuff? So so before Nathan answers, that, that's obviously a really <laughs> important question. And we are developing a cloning system so we can clone Good. Dr. Goodyear because unfortunately, they're not enough of him. So how do you get around this? So I think one way is you go to an oncologist, but you also go to an integrative clinician. So he may not be an, an, an integrative oncologist, but at least he knows the general principles. So you can use that together as a team. The other thing is there's some really very good books on what patients can empower themselves. They can read these books and um, they can re recognize what, what they can do. What are the things they can do to empower themselves? And they can discuss this with an integrative physician. So I think absolutely, if you have cancer, you, you want to have a team of an, a regular oncologist and an integrative doctor. You, unfortunately, you know, Nathan's a rare beast. He's like a dinosaur. You're not going to find many of them. If you can't, you want to go to him. But if you can't, that would be what I would say. Would you agree, Nathan? Uh, Paul, yeah, I wouldn't. I couldn't say it any better. Better, so there's nothing I can add to it. <laughs> so, um, unfortunately, there are not that many of us. There should be because when you're in the when you're in the science, I think it it requires and necessitates a more natural, holistic, and integrative approach. It by no means me points to the abandonment of conventional. And I think that's what happens. Both sides of the fence basically just throw fodder at each other. And I think it's ridiculous. And the only people that get hurt in that are the patients. Yes, yeah, so I think and, and so, made a really important point. Don't, don't abandon your regular oncologist because you need them as part of the team. So it's really a team of somebody who understands treating the whole patient and someone who knows how to give oncology to treat the cancer. So it's such an important point because 
it's a teamwork and you really need both. I, it, it sounds that way to me. And, um, you know, when you talk about repurposed drugs and, and using them as well as the latest technology, it seems to me just so sensible. Why would you throw out everything that has been in your toolkit for years that works and is safe? Here you have wonderful availability of many things. And the only thing wrong with them, of course, is that they're cheap and the pharmaceutical industry doesn't make money off of anything except the newest and latest thing. So why shouldn't you be able to use all of it and have the have the doctors like you two who understand this? Well, anyway, thank you, doctors. You are absolutely the best. And um we have just a few announcements, a few nice announcements that you want to stay tuned for, folks. So I just um, want to thank uh, yeah. Dr. Odia. You know, thanks, Nathan. It was a good discussion. And I think this is a subject which is of such importance. You know, we're going to speak again. Oh, yeah. we got to have you back. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would, for those people listening, there's some really good books out there. I mean, I read a book, How to Starve Cancer. I found it an astonishingly interesting book. And I think people who have friends, relatives, cousins who, who have cancer. I think this is a really important book to read. It, it's a starting point just to recognize that that there are multiple modalities of treatments. It's a multi-pronged approach. There's not just one hammer for this nail. How to Stop Cancer? Is that the title of the book? Or how do, It's called uh, Starving Cancer. Starving Cancer. I think that's what it's called. Hold on, let me tell you. It's called How to Starve Cancer. All right. We'll put it Jane in the chat. McClellan, How to Starve Cancer with Jane McClellan. It's a very good book. All right. Okay. Betsy, if I could say real quick, if, if, sure. if the listeners want to learn more, they could go to my personal website, drguja.com. Uh, there they'll find my podcast. And we actually dive deep, deep, deep and, and get into the weeds of the process of all aspects of cancer integrative medicine. And I'm the medical director at briomedical.com here in Scottsdale, Arizona. And they can also find me at uh, Instagram at brio underscore medical. Is that and at Dr. Goodyear? No. Dr. Okay, it's just Dr. Goodyear at Instagram and at Brio Medical on TikTok as well. Fantastic. Oh, Dr. 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 Goodyear. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Both of you, you're terrific. I really do have to wrap this up. We've got some uh, just some good announcements of things coming up that people want to know about. And uh, first of all, um, we want you to know about informed consent. You know, um, this is a term you hear a lot these days, especially in terms of not having truly informed consent for a treatment or a shot or whatever. Uh, what does informed consent actually mean? It is an agreement between you and your healthcare provider. It can lead to permission for care, treatments, and interventions. Everyone has the right to ask questions of their healthcare provider and the right to hear the options in treatment. We have now posted more information about informed consent on our website. So feel free to go there, educate yourselves, learn all you can. It's at flccc.net forward slash informed consent. Please do there. Now then, 
Long story short, you know, our Dr. Bean's latest episode of Long Story Short is all about melatonin and near infrared light and the importance of being outside in the morning and the evening to absorb that amazing sunshine. You can view this episode now on our website at flccc.net forward slash Dr. Bean, or on our FLCCC Odyssey channel, Rumble channel, or our special long story short YouTube channel to be sure to subscribe. Good information from Dr. Bean. Now then, it is official. We have a new logo and everything. The second FLCCC Educational Conference will be held in Fort Worth, Texas on April 28th and 29th. And we are excited to announce that as of today, registration is open. With early bird pricing on until the end of March, you can learn more and register now at flccc.net forward slash conference. So we'll see y'all in Texas. And you know, Nurse of the Month, once each month, we feature a nurse who's just very special. And the one we're honoring tonight, you've seen right here, our Nurse of the Month is Pamela Burnham, one of the nurse volunteers who's here every week behind the screen answering your questions. She has spent most of her career as a critical care nurse. Then she started her own private nursing practice in 2015, caring for immunocompromised cancer patients. Pamela is an administrator for the Virginia Medical Freedom Alliance. She has spoken at school board meetings and for various local groups in Virginia, testified at the Senate committee hearings in support of our own Dr. Paul Merrick, and is also a published author. Thank you, Pamela. Let's spotlight Pamela for all you have done and all you're doing. Give her a nice applause for Pamela. And here are her pals. Yes. Uh, who have been on tonight, the other nurses, Christina Moros and Scott Rogers and Samantha Hanks and Stephanie Lansiki. How'd you do tonight, folks? Did you have a lot of questions? We had so many questions and <laughs> half of them were cancer questions that we could not answer, but we had, um, we had 230 questions and we hands answered 124. And Betsy, did you notice... Samantha's hat. Oh, oh, I can, I can't, the lighting on it. Oh, yes, an FLCCC hot hat goes with my mug. Very nice, very nice, wonderful. We, um, yes, we have all these nice things on our website in our little shop that Christina, Nurse Christina, is the one who gets all this good stuff and designs it, right, and puts it in there. So, folks, have a look, have a look. We thank you so much. Yes. Oh, and our info. You know, you uh, in the chat are always busy telling us things on the webinars. And um, we want you to know that we pay attention to the suggestions. We have created printable materials that you requested so that you can. Now we have FLCCC business cards and postcards and protocol par cards and more on the website under educational tools. So you can download them, print them, you can share them, put them on postcards and you know, put them on bulletin boards, send them to the family, the friends and around the community. 
help spread the word. We thank you for what we think is a great idea. Hope you like them, print them, and, and use them. Now, and finally, as always, you know, your support. Your support allows us to do what we do. So we thank you, thank you, thank you for everything that you do, each and every one of you, for supporting us in so many different ways. We especially love it when you share the stories of what our work has meant to you or to your loved ones, um, just like what's in the story that you'll see in a second. Enjoy that. And we hope um, that we will, uh, that you have a wonderful week and that we'll see you right back here next Wednesday. So enjoy. Have a great week. Bye-bye.